Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Good morning. It's good to see you guys all this morning. Hope you have a good 4th of July weekend as we head into that. Um, But I want to talk to you today about one of the things that terrifies me the most, and it's first impressions. Uh, I know the irony of talking about first impressions, too, as the first thing on stage, because now you're going to be thinking about me on stage and how I impress you first. But this is a little insight into my mind, is I tend to overthink things a little bit, Uh, So when I know I'm meeting someone for the first time, I think about everything. Think about what I'm going to say, what I'm going to wear, how I'm going to act. I want the person to like me. All this runs through my head. And while I like to think I make good first impressions, uh, famously, my first impression with my wife, at least, was an emphatic, eh, nothing special. Uh, I grew over time. It worked out. But... Uh, we might not over, all overthink this as much as someone like me, but we do notice first impressions. Uh, it sticks with us. It informs how we approach things going forward. It can be anything. It can be the first few minutes of a movie. It can be the first few episodes of a TV show. Especially with like, streaming now, those first episodes or two, they need to hook you before you spend the next 10, 12 hours watching that series all the way through. But whether it's watching movies, reading books, or even listening to people talk on stage every Sunday, your mind frames everything next based off that first impression, deciding if you're going to tune them in or you're going to tune them out. And the reason I bring this up is because today we're talking about the very first psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalms 1. And it's the opening of the book of Psalms, and I, am, uh, I think it carries a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure, inviting the readers and you guys into what the next 150 Psalms are about. I would argue it's one of the more ignored or misunderstood books because it's, it's different than how we read here in the West. We're taught to read like a story. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. It's a very logical, straightforward approach to storytelling. And while you can find those type of stories in the Bible, uh, the book of Psalms is not like that. If you tried to read the Psalms like a story all the way through, you will realize it is very confusing, there aren't characters, and does not make sense. Different pastors and scholars, though, they would argue that the book of Psalms, it was constructed with a purpose, though. It was not randomly thrown together with a psalm here and a psalm there. There was thoughts and motive into the order of the st- and structure of it. And we'll actually delve into a bit of that later. But while it is a collection of independent hymns and songs and poetry and laments, they have a purpose. And Psalm 1 is the first psalm for a purpose. And we're going to dial in more on Psalm 1, which is actually probably one of my favorite psalms. Uh, But I would be remiss not to mention that Psalm 1 and 2, they kind of share this connective tissue. They kind of serve as a prologue to the rest of the psalms. See, Psalms is broken up into five books within them, and Psalm 1 and 2 are right before book 1 starts. And we're going to look at these because they give us an understanding of the purpose of psalms, and, and for us, in the light of Jesus, understanding more about who Jesus is. So Psalm 2 is actually what you would call a royal psalm. 
Uh, Being a nation of kings, Israel would have read this psalm at every coronation of a new king to remind them of, hey, this is what you're supposed to be as a king. There's a lot of language about Zion and kings, nations fearing Israel, God adopting a son to rule and serving the Lord. Psalm 1 is what you call an instruction psalm. It's a lot about the law or the Torah. And so God, through Moses, gave the nation of Israel instructions. Uh, It's obtusely, I think, translated as law often, but instructions is a better word here on how the nation is supposed to live. What to eat, how to treat others, how to communicate with God. So by reading these two psalms, we see two major goals or intentions of the entire book of psalms. To recognize the glory of God through his divine instruction, and also his divine rule as the one true king. And kings and law, this is not a, uh, a new idea. It's actually talked about in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. It actually says in Deuteronomy 17, it says, and when he sits, he being whatever king is next, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, the one who's in charge of the temple and all the sacrifices. And it shall be with him, the king, he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. So this idea of a king following the divine instructions of the law, it's not, it's not a new idea. And today we're going to act, focus more on Psalm 1 and God's instructions and how through that we're actually supposed to understand this idea of righteousness and instruction. But I do encourage you to read Psalm 2 and go back and listen to a few other sermons from the sermon series. Uh, I know uh, Paul and Scott have kind of more talked on this idea of king and kingdom, especially in the aspect of Jesus in the Psalms. Uh, and as we go, I also want to clarify a few terms that kind of help get us on the same starting level when it comes to these terms. Uh, the first is, okay, what is the law the Psalms is talking about? And what is this idea of righteousness? The first is law or Torah. Uh, there's debate over what exactly, and especially in Psalm 1, what it's referring to. But the general idea is that it refers to the instructions and teachings of God given through Moses, through the prophets, to his people. Uh, and being on this side of the crucifixion, we can include the life and teaching of Jesus into understanding what the will of God is as well. He's the one who ultimately embodies the will of God. Jesus being the word made flesh and the one who truly understands the will of God. The other term is a big uh, church word, church word of righteousness. Uh, The basic definition, at least for us here today, is that righteousness is indicated by the conformity of our hearts to the law of God. And Paul actually describes this uh, very well in the book of Romans. He puts it into a righteousness of man and a righteousness of God. The righteousness of man is defined by works to achieve the right standing. It's through kind of this do-it-on-your-own mindset, pull yourself by your bootstraps, typically associated with a very strict obedience to the, the law of God, saying, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to be righteous enough versus, versus the righteousness of God, which is God's way of making us righteous, showed through us and available to us through the life of Jesus by putting our faith in him. Kirk mentioned this a little bit last week as well, and it was very clear the only path to true righteousness is through the Messiah. Ultimately, that is what I think we all desire. And even in Genesis, we kind of see this played out as well. Uh, it says, it talks about Abram or Abraham before his name got changed. It says, Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
wasn't that Abraham did in action, but it was through his putting his faith in God that he was considered righteous. So, recognize this could be a little uh, hard to track, but uh, I want us to get a nice framework, because we're going to talk about today is that we are presented with two paths of wickedness or righteousness, and ultimately Jesus is the embodiment of that righteousness. We learn what that means by practicing and seeking out and understanding God's word. My desire for all of you and for myself as well is that we can move from people who just read scripture and meditate on, it, on Jesus' teaching from a place of just purely obedience, but to a place of true delight. That is what I hope for us here this Sunday morning. So, if you haven't already, crack open your Bible to the very beginning of Psalms. Uh, probably the easiest book to get to is the biggest one by far. Uh, and this is Psalm 1. I'm going to read it for us here. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalm presents to us two general paths or people here, the righteous and the wicked. At the, as the opening of the psalms, uh, one of uh, a scholar and a teacher on the psalms, Walter Brueggemann, he writes it and describes it as this way. The psalm presents to us a healthy orientated life that is anticipated even if not yet experienced. I think that quote is really important because it presents to us a pretty black and white world in the Psalms. There is no ambiguity here. You are either wicked or you are righteous. You will prosper or you'll be blown away. You will either make it or you won't. So as we discuss these two paths more, I have a disclaimer there are two paths, but these two paths do not mean that there are only two experiences in your faith. And let me explain. The path of righteousness and wickedness. The righteous man, he's defined by a relationship with God's word and counseling with God. The wicked is characterized by this lack of prosperity and a lack of relationship with God. What the psalm is not saying is that there are only two experiences or expressions of your faith journey. Ultimately, we will see that Jesus is the ultimate man of righteousness, the only one who walked the path of righteousness without faults, without stumbling, without detour. If we are to try to adhere to this code of ethics or code of law on our own, we will stumble, we will fall. We can easily fall into this idea that, okay, if this, this psalm means that for me to follow Jesus, that I cannot ever misstep. I can never falter on my journey. That mindset puts us in the mindset of righteousness of man, of I can do it on my own when we're called to have a righteousness of God, which is only accessed through Jesus. Do not hear me say that in order to partake in the salvation of Jesus, your life has to look exactly like this one single mold. Praise the Lord that we have access to God's righteousness and it's not dependent on our own because we would fail. 
The book of Psalms invites us on this road of being formed more and more into Jesus over the long span of our life and then spends in the book of Psalms the next 100 pages giving a voice to the wide variety of emotions that will come when the reality of a broken and fallen world get in the way of following Jesus. One of the reasons I think this is the very first psalm in the book of Psalms is that the next 149 are filled, and I mean filled with these accounts of varied experiences. Prayers and poems and songs of people calling out to the Lord, exclaiming that they are not experiencing that pristine path that we read in Psalm 1. People who have followed the law to a T, yet are not prospering. And you have people like David, the man after God's own hearts, the one who was the prototypical Messiah figure that people were looking for when they were looking for Jesus. He wrote many of these expressing his failures, exposing his shortcomings, crying out to the Lord. And I love that 99% of the Psalms end with a section of God, I still praise you, God, I still love you, God, I'm still following. I might not understand it, but I love you and follow you. We should strive to conform our hearts to God's will, yes. But we're not doing that to manufacture our own kind of righteousness. The Psalms gives us a reminder and touchstones of how to move into the direction of following Jesus and following God. So how do we do that? The first, I think, is to recognize our surroundings. It says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who, not walk, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. You will notice a progression there from walking to standing, eventually to sitting. Often the distinction of a right relationship versus a wrong relationship with God, it doesn't necessarily happen just overnight. It starts with a small compromise here, a different understanding there, eventually we realize that we find ourselves only in the company of quote-unquote wicked sinners and scoffers without really even realizing it. But I hope I do say that and something feels a little bit off. As I said, and we'll say again, Jesus is the quintessential man of righteousness here. And us being good Christ followers know the stories of Jesus. You should be asking the question, well, wasn't his whole ministry and life mainly defined and his focus on the people that others would decide are or call wicked sinners? My answer is yes. That was Jesus' ministry for a good reason. Jesus is the most righteous of us all because he was able to see that a relationship with is not the same thing as becoming one of. I worry that sometimes we read texts like this, especially this psalm, and it, we see it as, oh, I should not associate or even be friends with people who would qualify as wicked sinners and scoffers because Jesus showed how in practice that was not what we were called to do. This, he knew that to lead people to the cross, we need to lead them to Jesus, and that requires a relationship, engagement with all types of people. And I am well aware that what, who qualifies as wicked sinners and scoffers is not always clear in our day-to-day. But using Jesus' context as an example, he would say that both the religious elites, those on the far conservative side and the far progressive side, would fall into the category just as much as the prostitutes and tax collectors would. A general idea of wicked in the Old Testament is not someone you just disagree with, but it's someone who doesn't have a covenantal relationship or relationship with God. 
Jesus' goals in all interactions is to guide them to the cross, to guide them to knowing his Father. That should be our goal. He's the one who brings righteousness and salvation, not us. And this can take a single conversation. Sometimes it happens. But it can also take months or even years. The righteous know that they are not called on the path of isolation or separation. They are called to go to people. There's a cliche that I think some people take and use as an excuse of, I am in this world and not of it. And it's often thrown around, I think, to ignore some of the uncomfortableness that it is of being in a broken world. We tend to think that this means we need to put our heads down and ignore things outside the church sphere of influence. But Jesus was in the world. Jesus made a choice to take on the physical form of humanity and interact with it, get in the filth that was mankind. It says in Philippians uh, 2, who, though he, he being Jesus, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, you should have a strong Christian community. Like we talked about life groups in the beginning, you need those people who can call you out, who can challenge you and comfort you. They're vital because at some point you might find yourself going from that walking to standing and eventually sitting, and these people are the ones who will help get you to a place where you need to be. But it does not mean you do not interact with those outside. You might fall somewhere on that spectrum of maybe you only associate with people who don't know who Jesus and God is, or you only associate with people who know Jesus and who God is. And where you fall on that spectrum, I wish that I could tell you that you need to be right here, that you need to have 20%, 80%, 75 and 25. That is not the goal. It's different for everyone, different for everyone's community. One thing I know for sure is that if you do have Christian friends in a community, you should rejoice in that because that is not always a given in the world. But where, you've, where you land on that, we need to find out where that is for you. And the way we do that, I think, is part of this second point. So first, we need to recognize our surroundings, but in order to know how to interact with the world, to know what righteousness looks like, we need to know the heart of God. In order to do that, we need to delight and meditate on his heart. So it says in verse two and three, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. Now, I grew up in the church. I went to uh, like Awana, Bible drill, all these kind of things. If you would have asked me, do you delight in memorizing all the Old Testament books and saying them out loud? I would say yes, because I got chocolate if I got it right. Uh, but just because I read all these things, delight wasn't typically a word I would say. Uh, the Bible's confusing. It's hard to read at times. There's long chapters on nothing but genealogies. There's like the whole book of Numbers is just name after name that I cannot say. There's all these law codes on like what you should eat, what you should wear, really weird prophecies. And then there's all like the stuff that's kind of upsetting stories. There's stories about assault, family trauma, holy wars, all these things that I would not say, I delight when I read these at first. But the Psalms calls us to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate it on it day and night. 
like I said earlier, law is the word like Torah. It's the instruction, beginning of God giving his people an understanding of his nature and of his character. And for the nation of Israel, is likely what Moses was teaching them in the first five books of the Bible. And, but we are told not just to obey his law, we are called to delight in it. You can busy yourself day and day by reading and reading the Bible, know every scripture, be able to memorize it. You can know all the answers, you can know all the references, but your heart might not always be in the right place. You might be reading it to have an upper hand or to be right. In contrast, the psalm calls us to delight in the word. The word's root means to bend or incline towards as well as to take pleasure in. So to delight the word in the word of God and just help us to, in order to guide us to it. Not to overcome others, but to conform our own will to God's will. And we need to ask, do we, do we actually do that? Do we go to the stories of God and then try to bend his stories to what we think he's trying to say to conform to our own will? Or do we read the stories of scripture, of God and Jesus and all, all these huge spectrum of history in the Bible? Do we bend to what God wants us to do or do we try to force him into what we think is right? We even see Jesus, when he's playing in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Showing us that even in the face of death, Jesus knows the will of God so well that he's like, I'm going to follow through what, because this is your will, God. I trust you. I know you. I'm not taking another path. I'm following yours. And a step towards that is to do what the psalm calls us to do. We are to meditate on it. And this word is not, um, we associate meditation, I think, more here with the, ironically, an Eastern idea of meditation where you empty your mind, kind of close your eyes, cross your legs, free your mind of any thoughts, kind of go into a, a void of not thinking about anything, and that's what meditation is. But biblical meditation is actually the filling of your mind with God's word, the filling of your mind with what God's will is, not emptying. And the word meditation is actually, a, it means like muttering or slow, like quietly talking. So it's like saying words over and over, making sound with your mouth. So there's reverence for the text that is often lost, I think, here. And Jesus, being a good Jew, he, he knew this. He would have spent much of his youth studying the text. Uh, in adulthood, he was often called a rabbi or teacher of scripture. Uh, Luke even notes in his gospel that Jesus grew in stature and wisdom as a child. Jesus' life was filled with this meditating and delighting and growing on scripture. You can connect the sound of meditation, the muttering, with a stream. So when you read that section of Psalms where a stream, a, pl a tree planted by streams of water, you should associate that rustling brook of water with the muttering of someone saying scripture over and over and over. Jesus' audience was agricultural by nature. It's the reason why a lot of Jesus' parables have to deal with things like fishing, uh, planting, vineyards, all these kind of things. This image is quite clear here. The word and will of God is the thing that leads the tree, i.e. you, myself, any individual, to yield fruit in its time and prosper. Just imagine a beautiful tree planted by this raging stream of water with its roots deep, deep, 
down into the soil, never having to worry about the changing seasons, what weather is coming in, or the whims of the world. It's not planted in Colorado where apparently we get a lot of rain. I didn't know that. You guys lied to me. 300 days of sun. Yeah, right. Uh, The stream is not dependent on the weather. It's closely associated with the water. It's all else, when all else is temporary, the word of God is constant, consistent. It is always there. We even see that a tree was planted. Could, some translations say it was transplanted to the stream. The tree did not begin its life at the water. It was moved to it. Maybe at one point it was in a place that was dependent on something else. It was unable to reach the place that was giving it sustenance. It was unable to understand or get to God's will. A reminder that it's not our own will that brings us to righteousness. It's not possible. We need someone. We need a savior or Messiah to bring us to the source of living water. Contrast to the wicked, who the psalmist says is like chaff that the wind drives away. Uh, Thomas Constable, a former professor at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary, he put it this way. He says, the wicked, they are not necessarily as evil as they could be. They are superficial. Chaff is the worthless husk around the head of grain that is lights and white and blows away in the winnowing process. It is neither admirable nor beneficial to others. We are to be like the tree and not the chaff. We are to delight in the teachings of God, not for the sake of following rules, but to bend our hearts towards God's hearts. As it says in Hebrews, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. We meditate and delight in the Lord's teaching to bend towards being the embodiment of the word, towards Jesus, not to follow rules, but to celebrate in who Jesus is. And Jesus is at the center of all this because all scripture does point to who he is. Even John opens his gospel saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that, he, that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Who better to help us understand and meditate and chew on the word and will of God than the very embodiment of the word? Jesus was not righteous because he just did the right thing. He was righteous because he followed his path, the path of God because he sought to be in a right relationship with God, with the Father, and followed his will. Jesus is not the replacement of the law, but the fulfillment of it. He makes it very clear. There's a reason that we as a faith tradition, we still read the Old Testament and not just the New Testament. There's value in it. One of Jesus' most famous, and I would argue probably the most important sermon in the entire world is the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which the prophets is like the, the second half of the Old Testament mostly. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Essentially saying, I will not uh, pass away until the, the smallest comma or the smallest dots on an eye is fulfilled. Jesus, the word made flesh, did not abolish but fulfill. 
The entire Sermon on the Mount is spoken to an audience with people like the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees who have taken the commandments of God and twisted them in some form or way. On one side, you have the cultural conservative perspective who they have, they've added their own rules and regulations to what scripture says, making it very strict. Uh, and then on the other side, you have those who are the more progressive or looser perspective, choosing to loosen the text here, listen to this one, not believe this one. In actuality, these were people who had ignored the law. So again and again, Jesus says in a Sermon on the Mount, this phrase, you have heard. You have heard this about murder. You have heard this about adultery, about divorce and anger. And in his breakdown of how he, the one who knows God's will best, he understands what God's will is. He's not changing the law. He is completing it because he filled his mind with God's teaching. And therefore, as Christ's followers how do we slowly move into this idea of delighting in scripture? Because we see that it is the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's not just a set of rules. When we read sections that show the depravity and pain of humanity or laws that bind us, we can see Jesus has freed us from those burdens. I don't think I'm alone in saying that I can delight in that. But also know that this is a process that takes time. Uh, scripture is meditation literature. It's something you're supposed to read for your entire life. As someone who tends to lean towards the logical and intellectual sides of things, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around this because when I read scripture, I'm like, I'm trying to gain information. So I'm like, oh, I don't need to reread this story because I know what happens next. I know what Jesus says. I know where he does. But we're called to meditate and delight on it day and night for our entire lives reading scripture again and again, not to gain knowledge, but to bend our will towards the Lord. If being righteous is the conformity of our hearts to the law of God, the one who best understands the law is the one who can lead us to true righteousness. Now I said at the top of this that we are presented with a path of wickedness and a path of righteousness. Ultimately, Jesus is the embodiment of that righteousness. Now, closing of the psalm sounds a bit ominous. Uh, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But it is only ominous if you walk away from the psalm seeing it as a declaration to follow a rigid law code. Right, I put it this way, the focus of Psalm 1 is not on the obedience uh, to, the, to the law, rather its focus is on delight in the law. With Jesus, we are not called to follow a set of laws and sacrificial orders or codes, we are called to follow Jesus and bend towards him, for he is the only source of God's righteousness. Lean on his righteousness, not our own. So we begin the book of Psalms with a hymn about leaning in to the wisdom of the Lord on meditating and delighting with the seemingly binary choice. And through the next 149 Psalms, a path is explored with emotions, both very high and very low. But the book of Psalms ends on a pretty clear message. And Psalm 150 ends with a message of praise. The final psalm reads this. It says, 
praise the Lord. That's where we get the, the word hallelujah from, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise for him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The fact that we begin the Psalms with a call to bend our will towards God, to delight in his teachings, to follow in what he has given us and told us, to end in a Psalm doing nothing but crying out in praise, at least for me, that gives me hope that I can trust in God, that the path that he has laid out in front of me will end in a place of nothing but praise. That whenever we get to that point in heaven, Praise will be the defining factor of who he is. We can do nothing but praise the Lord. So please join me in prayer as we uh, move into some worship uh, and just ask yourself, okay, how can I move from a place of seeing my relationship with Jesus as just following rules? How can I move to a place of delighting in what, who Jesus is and what he has done for me? Might not be an easy process, won't be a quick process, but is what we are called to do to move to a place of delighting. And I hope we end in a place of saying, praise the Lord with all our hearts. So please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you knowing you are good. God, you have proven that time and time again. God, I pray that we come to you knowing that you are the source of righteousness, that we cannot do it on our own, that anytime we try to prove ourselves to you, Lord, that we will fail. God, we have been given access to your righteousness through your son, through his ministry, through his life, through his death and resurrection on the cross, God. God, thank you for so many things, for who you are, for what you've shown in this community, God, and I just praise, I pray, we keep running after you, trying, striving to know you a bit better, striving to understand your will, God, to conform ourselves to your, your will, God, not to do it the other way. God, thank you for so many things, big and small, seen and unseen. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week.